This episode, I'm joined once again by Sam Kunkel to discuss the work of Gustav Kahn. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. If you'd like to support the podcast and keep it running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Sam Kunkel, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to be discussing the life and work of Gustav Kahn. Uh, so, as my listeners will know, uh, I recently started doing book reviews and very kindly, First to Knock Publishers um, sent me The Solar Circus by Gustav Kahn, which is uh, introduced and translated by yourself. And so, I did the review of the book and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I also thoroughly enjoyed both of your essays in the book and Michael P. Daly's uh, own uh, after after word, after essay. Um, and we spoke about this over email and thought that, you know, doing a episode on Khan himself and a discussion around the book and symbolism and things like that would be, would be you know, a nice thing to do. So um, I guess really to begin is where did this book come from? Why this book specifically? Because Khan did write a lot. And, and who is this... Uh, who is this figure? Yeah, so that's that's a big question. I will try to break it down into smaller pieces. Um, thank you, by the way, for your incredibly enthusiastic uh, review of the Solar Circus. It was a pleasure to um, to listen to you talk about it like that. Um, Gustav Kahn is a French poet and art critic. He was an editor of different literary reviews, uh, and he was active in the final decades of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century. Uh, He was born in 1859. He dies in 1936. Um, And he is known to most people who know his name, which is not a terribly large number of people because he's relatively unknown uh, even today in French academic circles. But for those who know him, they most likely know him as if not the inventor, then certainly one of the first practitioners of free verse poetry. Um, Gustav Kahn begins writing poetry in the late 1870s, the early 1880s, which is a really fascinating time. It's sort of a watershed moment in French literary history, and I would dare to say even literary history as a whole, because it's one of those moments where uh, pressure, which has been building up, pressure uh, born of a need to innovate and a need to do something different, uh, has finally hit boiling point, and the floodgates open. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Gustav Kahn is is really active in the 1880s at a time when the novel is changing, at a time when poetry is changing. He's right there at the forefront as part of the vanguard of this new way of writing. Um, And so he's very active in terms of just poetic production. In 1886, for example, he's the editor of a literary review called La Vogue, which uh, is the first place where free verse poetry was published in any sort of consolidated way. Uh, The first time that an editor, Kahn in this case, grouped together different free verse poets and said, here's this new poetic school, here's this new way of writing, uh, and we're calling it free verse. And 
the novel itself, The Solar Surface, is interesting because it's written in 1898, so well over a decade after all of that, and well over a decade during which people kept experimenting with literature. People kept pushing the boundaries of prose and poetry and fusing them in new, exciting, innovative ways. And Khan, with this novel, remains right there at the forefront. Uh, the Solar Circus itself, as a novel, is incredibly fascinating, just from sort of a historical standpoint, because it's essentially a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge to novelists, it's a challenge to poets, it's a challenge to the reader, as, as you know now, uh, to see just how strong the boundaries are between these two things. And it's, it's sort of Khan's argument that the boundary between poetry and prose, between poems and novels, is really quite malleable. That there's really no need for this boundary, that we can sort of fuse everything and create a new kind of text. And so that's what he's doing. Uh, it, it's not unexpected either because, you know, for a long time in the 18, 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the school of thought on the subject of poetry was that poems have to be rhymed. They have to be bound and confined by syllabic metrics. You need to have uh, a certain number of syllables, a certain rhyme scheme, and this and that for it to be considered a poem with a capital P. And if the author of that doesn't adhere to those rules, then they can't call themselves a poet. Khan uh, sort of came along and said, well, you know, we've gotten to a point where we have these poems where they rhyme, but the lines don't make any sense. I, I don't know if you, James, personally have read a poem, for example, where... The line goes along and it ends, but the sentence continues on into the first few words of the next line, and then it keeps going that way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and, and so it rhymes and the, the meter is correct and things like that. But Khan's whole argument is, if you're going through all of these sort of mental gymnastics to make sure that your ideas fit into, into the mold of what a poem, quote unquote, is supposed to be, then there's no point. At that point, you're serving form over idea, and the whole point of artistic creation is to follow your ideas. And so free verse poetry uh, would allow artists, poets, to remain purely faithful to their ideas. And so that's, that's sort of the guiding thought that leads them through the 1880s. And by the 1890s, Khan is reacting again to what a novel can do, and he's trying to inject free verse poetry into traditional narrative prose. And so he just keeps innovating throughout these decades. Uh, and the solar circus fits right into that sort of, that sort of paradigm, I suppose. So I want to step back to something you said earlier on and perhaps focus on this for a little bit as a possible foundation for a lot of the themes and reactions and sort of outbursts, which happen within the novel. You mentioned this pressure, you know, this, this uh, creative and, uh, I guess, cultural and social pressure, which eventually, you know, I guess, broke or something had to, to, to happen. Uh, what, what is this? What is this? And what's it related to? Yeah. Um, so in terms of, I mean, this is first and foremost a novel. Uh, and I think it should be read as a novel. Afterwards, you can talk about the, the quality of the prose and things like that. 
But in terms of the pressure building up to this, there's just a desire on Khan's part for innovation, for newness, for something fresh and invigorating, dynamic. And I think he saw both poetry and prose as being sort of just run down and going through the motions and, and drained of any sort of vitality. Um, the novel in France in the 1880s, 1890s, I mean, even before that as well, was really dominated by the naturalist movement, which is championed by Emile Zola. And he wrote these, these very big, heavy, long novels about real life, about the grittiness of reality, uh, oftentimes about the, the poor working class of Parisian society. So the people who worked for the railroads, the prostitutes, I hear about alcoholism and all of those things. Um, and in the 1880s, there's a big literary reaction against that. Well, it's not a big reaction, but there's an important literary reaction against that, uh, which is known as the decadent movement, wherein a group of more artistically minded writers saw Zola's naturalist literature as being responsible for the decay, the decline, the decadence of the novel as an art form. And so they decided to write uh novels which would be the exact opposite of everything that Zola wanted to do. So if Zola is going to write about everyday life and reality, what's the opposite of reality? It's, it's the inner life. It's the mind. Um, so they were very much inspired by the idealist philosophy coming out of Germany, specifically uh, Schopenhauer. A lot, a lot of them hadn't read Schopenhauer. He wasn't terribly widely available, but they knew that famous line, which is, the world is my representation. And so there's this idea that they embraced that through certain aesthetic stimulation, uh, through sense perfumes, through visual stimulation, like looking at paintings, you could escape sort of the, the like the banality, the ugliness of everyday life and sort of withdraw into the ivory tower of the mind where you are able to orchestrate everything you want uh, according to your whims and fancies and create a reality for yourself that is ultimately much more appealing. And so they wrote novels like um, Against Nature, Arbour, comes out in 1884. Uh, there's other novels that take place inside of characters' minds, like Sixteen by Remy de Gourmont, uh, also takes place largely inside of the narrator's mind. And there's a lot of emphasis placed on internal... Uh, subjective narration and things like that. And so Khan, again, that's the 1880s. Khan in the 1890s is thrilled with this innovation, thrilled that people are moving on from just sort of the closed circuit of naturalist literature. But he's saying as well that, you know, decadent literature was fun and good, but we need to keep the ball rolling. We need to keep moving forward. And the Solar Circus very much plays out this this sort of tension that he was feeling in 1898 between this desire to live a more refined, curated, private life inside of one's mind and the also very real need to live a life. Like you, you can't just sit inside of your ivory tower all day reading books is his point, as tempting as it might be. And so he's dealing with a lot of pressure both from 
literature for the masses and then literature for the elites, which was decadent literature. And he's trying to reconcile all of that. I, th I think in your review, you described it as some sort of hydraulic press. And I think that's just a tremendously effective image to describe everything that he's packing into this book. He's, um, he's challenging naturalist literature. He's challenging decadent literature. He's challenging poets. He's challenging prose stylists. He's doing all of that in what seems like a very sort of silly novel about the circus. Yeah, and it becomes very not silly fairly quickly. I mean, there was yes. also... Um, so the, you mentioned there this, this retreat into the subjective mind and this sort of inability to stay there in a, any sense of... Um, we could say metatextual sovereignty in which, you know, the, the, this relationship between the subjective and the objective and something you mentioned uh, in the notes about this, that Lorelei as proof of the external and this sense of attempting to capture some part of the objective, which is constantly um, it, somewhat deterministically, it seems, always escaping the grasp because that's its nature as the objective to do so. And this not necessarily a defeat, but what is happening in that struggle, that literary and creative struggle to try and have some manner of not necessarily control. I'm not, I'm not sure Khan would be sympathetic towards wanting to control anything, but what is the relationship that we can as creatives uh, effectively take up with what we deem to be the objective and and even in characterization characters which sort of you know one of the most interesting thing interesting um parts of the narrative of the novel for me was this idea of um the count basically being written to be in the castle and in his exit from the castle it's almost like a character who is is bereft of his actual textual foundations is somewhere where he shouldn't really be to the point where the other characters of the of the castle are writing to draw him back right um yes. this sort of strange uh, uh fragmentation of the, yeah the objective position that they were that the characters were meant to play <laughs> i love the idea of, of a characters pa panicking almost like you know uh, saying, well, where's he's always meant to be there, right? He's not in his place. Where is he? Um, yeah. yeah. What happens now? Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah. So, oh, no, go I ahead. Add on very quickly. I think what's funny about that, too, is that it speaks to the Count's point of view. He's so used to the castle being this closed off little bubble that he lives in that it's almost like the servants are pieces of the furniture to him. Like, he doesn't consider the fact that they need him to be there. So when he exits, he doesn't consider the, the implications or the consequences that you know, his exit could, could have on them, the sort of vacuum that might be created where all of a sudden they lose one of their uh, you know, uh, touchstones for their reality. Mm. And this is a, for me, I mean, these themes of very, very, in a very cliched sense, the first theme of what it is to be a human within a certain position, the notion of determinism of whether both textually within the narrative and creatively we are determined to be a certain way, which then sort of blends through into a form of 
automatism for the characters and the yeah. consistent battle to sort of fight against um, anything which is automatic. But Khan is at least very sincere in himself with regard to what I guess we couldn't consider a limitation, but he is very sincere about the battle in a way which is at hand, which is that to overcome automatism, he has to consistently articulate the moments where automatism even under its own agency is seeking to try come back in right and you know Lorelai being this example of sort of mm. she's consistently saying to the count like that's not you know oh no no you can't take me there you can't take me there and you know he's trying to just sort of grasp her right well i think that's i think that's what's interesting about it as well is that the count uh you know, he, he's in love with Lorelai. He wants her to come back to the castle and live with him. And she says, no, I need to live. I, I feel most alive when I'm in the circus. I feel most alive with the electric lights on my face when people are looking at me, when I'm in the center of all this attention. And his argument is that she's just going through the motions and doing the same show over and over and over. And it, it totally, his understanding of the situation totally precludes any sort of internal uh, exhilaration, right? He doesn't take into account the fact that she might feel a rush when she's on stage. And I think, I think Khan very cleverly chose the circus, uh, because it is real life. Like it, it's obviously the circus is this fantasy world, but it's all happening in reality. Mm. It's happening in front of the viewers. It's happening for the performers who are working together, but all of their, showmanship all of their expertise their daring stunts all of that is predicated upon hours and hours and hours of repetition and practice mm. and so uh it's easy to look at all of that as just you know wasted time doing the same thing over and over but then for Khan, you know i think the payoff is that that internal gratification that you get when people applaud or when you you know, if you're working at a, a, a translation, you keep chipping away at it over and over and over. Eventually, it comes out as a printed book. And it's something that Franz is just not equipped to understand because he is not used to human interaction. He's not used to these lived experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just want to, I do just want to comment just to keep the discussion a little bit wider than the book. I mean, this notion of free verse i mean if i was to ask you to mm -hmm. define what free verse is as you know as the novel goes on we it's it's a, it's a novel it's written in the normal narrative style but there's also free verse there's also sort of uh, poetry coming in so what is free verse and uh, khan i guess isn't necessarily the i guess it's like basically historically impossible to say who invented what right <laughs> yeah um yeah so i mean in, in, so, yeah, the question of free verse is a big question. Um, generally speaking, you know, it, it gets kind of tricky to try to pin it down to one concise definition in the same way that it's difficult to define what a novel is. Um, but generally speaking, free verse is understood as poetry where there's an absence of syllabic metrics and any sort of rhyme scheme. For Khan, uh, that didn't mean that the text would be totally flat. What then, if, if, if syllable count and rhyme scheme are gone, it can still be poetry 
if one, the poet, pays attention to the sort of energy of the words, the internal dynamism that they inherently contain. And so you can use certain literary effects like consonants or alliteration or repetition and things like that to add energy and vigor to the verse. Um, his whole argument, and I mentioned it in the preface, um, is that you can use these things. And in 1891, he was interviewed and somebody asked him to describe or to define what free verse is. And he says, what is a line? It's the simultaneous halting of a thought and the form of the thought. What is a stanza? It's the development of an integral aspect of the idea through a sentence composed in verse. What is a poem? It's the orchestration of the whole idea that one wished to evoke, realized through its own prismatic facets, which are the stanzas. Um, and those few sentences are incredibly loaded with implications. Uh, one of my favorites is the very first sentence when he says, what is a line? It's the simultaneously, it's the simultaneous halting of a thought and the form of the thought. So he's already thinking if a line is what stops the thought and the thoughts form, he's thinking about, first of all, the idea, the form that it's going to take, then the shape that it's going to take on the page through the words, um, and then how it's going to come across, sort of how it's going to be laid out on the page. Uh, it's a really radical idea for 1891 that that prefigures in a lot of ways uh, a lot of the sort of radical poetry of the 1910s, 1920s, like in 19, right around 1910, Guillaume Apollinaire publishes a book of poetry called Calligram, which are poems that are shaped where the words are shaped to look like things. So like he has a poem about fireworks where it looks like the different lines of the poem are sort of exploding fireworks. Um, he has another one, oh, about like a flame and the words are shaped like a flame and things like that. But Gustav Kahn in 1891, 20 years before, is already thinking about uh, the shape that the words are going to take. It's also an idea that prefigures comic books in a way. Um, if you think about how we read comic books and how we navigate our way across the page of comic book, we follow the words. When we see the words turn uh, perpendicular, parallel to the page, we know that we should then follow them and turn the book itself. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a book called House of Leaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's lots of active reading that takes place in there, and it's, it's the direction of the words that cause you to turn the book itself. Khan is already thinking in 1891 about the orientation of the word and its relationship to the page. It's a really interesting idea. Um, but beyond that, when he talks about these things and he says, what is a stanza? It's the development of the integral of an integral aspect of the idea through a sentence composed in verse. And then what is a poem is the orchestration of the whole idea. Uh, so basically a stanza is a sentence and a poem is a paragraph. When you read The Soldier Circus, you can see him adapting that theory to the narrative. Um, you, you've read it, you've waded through the waters of The Soldier Circus. Um, there's some very long, very dense paragraphs. And it was my theory. So here I'll, I'll preface this by saying I could not find anything that Khan really wrote about his theory for the solar circus. He didn't create like a user manual or anything like that. Um, 
and nobody at the time really paid too much critical attention to it, at least. Um, so this is my own personal theory, but I think it holds water. Um, when you read the paragraphs and you read through them, it helps if you read them. So it's, it's lots of long sentences with images, and the images are truncated within commas, within the sentence. And to me, the commas were almost meant to act like line breaks in a free verse poem. And so when I translated this, it was really important to me to respect, first and foremost, uh, the order that he put his original sentences in, because it's how our brain is going to be compiling and composing and stacking up the images. He's sort of laying them out like you would cars on a train. And it was important to me as well to keep all the words and the images within their respective commas, because it's supposed to be read like a free verse poem where you don't really worry too much about how long a line is or how short a line is. Um, so it was really, really interesting. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of really cinematic moments in the book. For example, when Franz first looks out of the window and sees the circus rolling into town and he sees, you know, birds flying in the sky and people are running across the field with their hats cast backwards and all of these really wonderful moments. And in a very cinematic way, he's kind of guiding the viewer, the reader's attention uh, from scene to scene, from, from person to person within this greater sort of uh, landscape. Do you feel this this um, this philosophy of writing his his you know it's almost like proto Derridian understanding of the fact that you know he he has a very uh, meta understanding of his focus on the words is the fact that the reader is reading literal words right it's not really not it's to do with the narrative in one sense but it, in another sense it's the understanding of just how it is we read does this sort of bleed through into his use of time in the novel? Yeah, I think he's thinking about all of these. He's, he's thinking about the experience of the reader. He's trying, and this was part of the challenge for me as a translator, is he's thinking about what the reading experience will be like. He's thinking about, first and foremost, at, at, at the bedrock of all of it, is the question of, what is the scene? What is the information I want to convey with this scene? What are the, then what are the images? And then what are the poetic effects that I can put on top of it to uh, create sort of, you know, a sensorial experience for the reader? Uh, there are lots and lots of scenes where I just like pull down my hair trying to, to match Khan's rhythm. Hmm. Um, but, and I know that you... I'm sorry, I think every time I've been on your podcast, I bring this up. I know that you've read Ulysses um, and you've gone through your own no, journey. No, I, I haven't. I, I didn't. I, um, I didn't. I don't. I'm not huge, I think. I'm finding I'm not huge on modernism. I, I tried Ulysses a long time ago. I think uh, I didn't get too far into it. It wasn't for me. I, I think what you're referring to is that I had a, I had a Patreon... Yes. Like if someone subscribed yes. enough that I would burn a copy of Ulysses on the lawn, that's sort of my, my yeah. that's my thing. But I don't mind Finnegan's Wake. You don't mind Finnegan's? Okay, we'll talk about that after. Uh, <laughs> I, wow, okay. Um, 
But in, in Ulysses, like one of the, which is 1922, so 24 years after the Soldier Circus, one of the, the things that Joyce is doing is that the style of prose in each chapter is dictated by the setting. So Joyce is thinking about how language is contextual. Khan um, modulates his language and the rhythm of his language as a function of the energy of the scene. It's not every time, but for example, you might remember that there's this um, there's this scene where Franz and Laura, they have gone out for a walk at night and they sort of talk about, Franz talks about the sort of renaissance that he's going through. Um, and then they come back into the tavern and there's this whole sort of tavern scene and the prose just really rips along and it's very rhythmic. And so he says, um, the room had filled up. Laughter crackled around each of the little tables. Hung upon the walls, tapestries excited and delighted, with a whole series of Flemish feasts woven after the, after the series by the Dutch master Tenier. The apple-cheeked gossips and their wide-waisted accomplices, with their waists vast like vases, drained as the dance proceeded, great tankards of heady, heady lager, and stripped the flesh from legs and mutton. And it goes on and on with that sort of like... Uh, Tapestries excited and delighted, blah, 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 blah. And it's almost like a pattern, like a Gilbert and Sullivan sort of uh, pattern to it. But I remember when I was, so Khan is doing all of these things consciously, and he's trying to recreate for the reader through the words uh, the same experience that Laura Lee and Franz might have. And I remember when I was translating these things, trying to like tap out the rhythm of the scene with my fingers, like going like, excited and delighted blah, 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 and um, really trying to make sure that that came through in the translation because it's an important part of his of his literary project but I, you, you mentioned his use of time um, and I think one of the other things that's very in- interesting about um, this novel is the way that it almost it almost prefigures existentialism it almost prefigures like the novels of Camus mm-hmm. uh, so Khan, at a time when a lot of people are concerned with spirituality, with mysticism, uh, you had me on most recently to talk about Edward Chiray. Um, at a time when all of that is happening, and even symbolism as a poetic movement is very interested in this idea of getting closer to the absolute, of breaking down the boundaries of language and getting closer to this world of pure forms, to put it in platonic terms. Uh, Khan is not terribly concerned with those things. He's interested in in art and poetry and language. Um, and his whole one of my readings of this book is that his, one of his one of his theses about it, at least, is that you're supposed to live. You're supposed to go outside and live life. And it's in moments like the tavern scene or like when Franz looks out of the window that it's almost like he's expanding time it feels like everything's slowed down and he slowly takes all the time he wants to guide you from person to person from scene to scene within this big landscape of people um and it's almost you know it's 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 uh yeah it's just sort of about a duration i suppose you could say if you want to put it in purely philosophical terms uh in bergsonian terms where, you know, the happier that Franz is, the more pure joy he feels from the world around him, the slower time goes or appears to go for us, the reader as well. It's a really interesting thing. 
Yeah, and this sort of, for me at least, it this notion of darkness and light throughout the the novel as mm. well in relation to spatiality and time. So one of the interesting things that's happening this this notion of like closing the shutters to block mm. out the light and artificially alter the entire scene in a metatextual way, which is then changing the rhythm and changing the prose itself. Um, and this is a fairly fascinating, fascinating thing that's really, uh, really happening. And this, this sort of, as you mentioned, the tavern scene there, and then of course the, the circus as well, this, this consistent uh, rhythmic entry into different spatialities as a means to try not get caught, but then once you notice the pattern, there's this cause this questioning of whether or not you're you're caught once again in perhaps a an ongoing um an ongoing sort of intuitive discussion with entropy and extropy. Like what's being built, what's fading away. Um, you know this of course this this notion of cyclicity within the novel as well. Um and a real uh, I don't know. Uh, some uh, to, to in a certain way, some of it's almost like uh, reminds me of the work of William Blake, which I'm doing an episode yeah. on soon. This, uh, but um, but it does. It certainly can't. Certainly doesn't feel um, defeatist. I think he's a very hopeful novel in the end. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, I think it's yeah. So I think there there are a few different things that you said that I want to respond to. Um, the, this notion first of like interior versus exterior, even when he, when he and Laura, they go out for their, their stroll and he starts talking about how happy he is with her and how she's changed his life. Uh, he talks about how, how miserable he was. And he says that he had only seen life, uh, through the grimy glass of a porthole window in an attic room. Hmm. Uh, and then he keeps going and she says, and he says, but now I would beg the minutes to stay for life is brief and happiness is short. They're fleeing in droves in buzzing bee swarms that speed along and they fly away towards hidden flowers, distant, more magnificent than this sorry soul. <laughs> they fly away without paying attention to me who'd want to hold on to them and knows not how. While your solar minutes, my Laurelie, remain with you through the magic of your beauty. Uh, and then he keeps going for a little bit. And she says, what are you trying to say? If a mere mortal can hope to find an explanation between beneath all of that ethereal jargon. And he says, I'm trying to say that I'm happy to be at your side, that the vastness of this happiness frightens me and that it is like a bright shaft of sunlight that shines into an old mansion and spreads its smile all about, save for into some dark corners where old spider worms still cling to the extinguished house, where the walls are still beaded and humid and damp. I'm afraid that my own soul which, know, which now knows how to run to that beam of sunlight with joyful leaps and has taken a soft shine to it, might frighten and run trembling and haggard into one of those drab corners. Um, so I think this idea of like, darkness versus light, it's, yeah. So the novel starts out, like you said, with him, he wakes up in the morning and he closes the curtains and immediately starts drinking and smoking cigars and once he's done that, once he's lit his cigar, he turns to his dog and says, ah, Daybreak is finally here. Daybreak is truly here. <laughs> and it's, it's this sort of ironic subversion. And this is a very sort of cynical, pessimistic view 
And then later he goes out and sees the actual circus. And he says, oh, now Daybreak is actually here. And so Khan is playing with, you know, sort of the darkness of the minds, this closed theater of the mind versus uh, the, the solar beauty of the outside world. Um, and you were talking about cycles and the cyclical nature of the novel. Um, yeah, at the end of it, Khan uh, places Franz right back where the novel started. He ends up in the same living room with the same books. And he asks for his maid, Dorothy, to bring him more alcohol. Um, and it could seem like it was all for nothing, like the whole thing maybe never happened, but also didn't matter or anything like that. But I agree with you that I don't think it's meant to be seen as a tragedy. I think Khan is talking about the nature of creation and the satisfaction that comes from a worthwhile project. I think he's talking about how when you're when you're doing something, when you're writing, when you're painting, when you're doing anything that you find fulfilling and where you feel like you're pursuing your ideal, your platonic ideal of, of beauty or whatever it is, you lose yourself in that. There's an intoxication in the, in the act of creation, in the act of pursuit. Um, but that can't last forever. You know, the sun sets at the end of the day and eventually you find yourself back where you started. But you don't need to despair over that it's inevitable uh and so you just have to wait and find something new and so i don't think you know he Khan doesn't specify whether or not franz has learned from the experience he doesn't dwell the novel ends really sort of abruptly i was, I was sort of surprised by how quickly it ends uh, when i read it for the first time but i think it's not meant to be a tragedy if you if you unpack everything that he's saying to us there's a lot of reasons, like you were saying, to feel hopeful for uh, for Franz. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm I'm very much um, personally sympathetic to well, uh, accepting of um, you know I guess Spenglerian cyclical theories of history alongside natural cycles such as the sun mm. rising and uh, the sun setting and. Um, that uh, renewal and rebirth and things along those lines. But um, just, I mean, it's a fairly uh, sharp segue, but I know you wanted to mention Jack the Ripper's role in the novel. So oh, yeah. I'll uh, give you an opportunity there to, to mention oh, Jack, Jack the Ripper, because I know it's something I didn't uh, mention in my own uh, review. Yeah, I mean, you can't talk about everything, you know. It's, um... <laughs> but yeah, so... Jack the Ripper is one of the five characters in this book. Um, so he, the, the, the novel ends, the last act of the novel takes place in London. Um, Franz basically leaves his palace, his castle, falls in love with Laura Lee, follows Laura Lee and her traveling company for a little bit. Uh, he and Laura Lee go down to the south of France where the novel sort of hits its, its climax in terms of Franz's happiness and the happiness that he derives from the lived experience. And then they go over to London where Laura Lee uh, takes center stage as the star of this huge circus. And Franz watches as the object of his affection, as the object of his uh, infatuation is shared with everybody uh, as thousands of other eyes look at her and he sort of goes through the struggle where he realizes that this object that he'd been trying to keep private, that he had 
freely loved while they were together by themselves in the south of France is now being shared and, you know, dissected by strangers who also are enamored of her. Um, And he sees all this happening. Jealousy rises up within him and he leaves and goes out into the grimy London streets and into an opium den where he meets Jack the Ripper. And I think basically Khan at this point places Franz at a crossroad. You have on the one hand, Laurelie and the circus, which as we said, is sort of the epitome of the lived experience and proof that Franz can't control things, proof that Laurelie exists outside of him, that there are forces that he can't control and he can either accept it or withdraw into his own private mind. And so at the other end of the spectrum, you have Jack the Ripper, who uh, I believe Khan inserts into the narrative as an example of what happens when you get too wrapped up in your own mind and your own fantasies. So Jack the Ripper describes himself as a specialist, as an artist. He said that he's from the future. Um, It's a really sort of crazy passage. Um, And I think... His whole point is, Khan's whole point with Jack the Ripper is, if you keep pursuing private endeavors purely for your own satisfaction, without any concern for other people around you, without any concern for their involvement, um, eventually you could end up like Jack the Ripper, who clearly has gone so far down that path that he's now living purely for his own self-satisfaction at the the expense of others. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's a, a really sort of surprising uh, addition to, to the novel. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. What did, what did you think of him? What did you think of his From what, you, in relation to what you said, it reminds me of Michel says, uh, philosopher Michel says, sort of, he has this idea that for him is in relation to worldly pollution, but I think it fits here of a. <clears throat> of uh, some people sat round for a meal and the salad bowl is passed round and then it gets to one person and they just spit in it, you know, and all of a sudden, of course, well, there's only one person who can now eat that unless we have to enter into like their own metaphorical vision or uh, their own perhaps artistic or subjective pollution of it. Now, um, with respect to Jack the Ripper, I think one of the things that maybe Khan would say is that you can do that but in doing that, not only are you spoiling it for everyone else within this, like the cycle that it's within, whether it's within that certain day, the sunrise, the sunset, whether whether it's in within like a cultural cycle, a historical cycle, not only are you spoiling it within that, uh, you're actually also spoiling it for yourself. And I think one of perhaps one of the more interesting questions that Khan perhaps posits is that whether or not in doing that you're actually only spoiling it for yourself, and in doing that. You, you know, your the the relationship between the subjective and the objective doesn't mean that the subjective is just opinion. But as soon as you do something like that, where you try to like grasp the objective and take it away from just like I'm going to keep the objective for myself, you actually no longer have the objective. Um, you no longer actually have the beauty, and it's almost like Khan is attempting to consistently, time and time again, attempting with the novel to find. What is the uh, holistic, perhaps healthy 
position for creative man to have where you are experiencing it, whatever it may be, but you're equally not destroying it for yourself and you're equally not destroying it for other people. But at the same time, you are adhering to some form of subjectivity and are not just washed away, you know, into an artificial collective. And it's a very, very difficult tightrope walk to yes. to undertake basically and that, that that for me was the the big question of the novel is not so much like what do we do with beauty in a utilitarian sense but a, a trepidation in even approaching it because you know to bring in an extremely cheap and soppy quote that um that idea of like if you love a if you if you love a flower don't pick it right it's sort of <laughs> sort of uh a very quick description of the novel, but then beyond that, that notion of what's to be done with this thing I find beautiful is taken up very, very sincerely in uh, a cast of characters who each have their own relationship with it. And I think in a way the count ends up with the one, which is the most uh, actualized because he's become somewhat, you know, he's gone through the motions and he isn't caught in a distinct vision, I don't think. That would be my well, comment anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I, I agree. And I think that certainly, if you look at it from start to finish, he's the only one who evolves in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Jack the Ripper stays Jack the Ripper. Laura Lee stays with the circus. Uh, I mentioned a minute ago that Franz ends up alone at his castle, just like at the start of the novel. And it's because Laura Lee said, I can't leave the circus. I need to stay here. So basically Franz has navigated from one end to the other and back. And he's the only one who's really gone on this sort of this range. And I think that's ultimately if we are to accept, because this is one of the other things that I've I've talked with a few other people about this book but, but again, nobody's really written about it. So there's not much that's been posited. But I think we have to accept that, first of all, the whole circus, the whole experience with Laura Lee is not taking place in Franz's mind. Uh, people have said, oh, I think it's just a dream. I think it's just this. And I don't think that's Khan's point. I think he wants to show that this is actual life, that you can go outside and have these reactions. Um, but I think... Yeah, that's 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 the point. Is that you can go out and have these things, but eventually everything ends. But we have to imagine that Franz is happy, or at least in a better place at the end of the novel, because he's learned from the experience, he's gained knowledge, and he's he's felt that sort of warmth that comes from his day in the sun with Lorelei. If you'll pardon a terrible pun. Um, so yeah, I think I would I would agree with you in what you said. Mm. Yeah. So I didn't ask at the beginning, uh, unless you mentioned it. And apologies if you did. But why did you select? Why did you select this this novel specifically by Khan to to translate? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so that that's a a good question as well. Um, first, I found the novel in a footnote. I was reading when I did my dissertation. I did my dissertation on um, sort of like symbolist novels uh and i was reading about the style of novels and how it changed in the 1880s the 1890s and in a footnote there's some very very brief sentence that just said 
something like another good example of this is the Solar Circus by Gustav Kahn. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I didn't know that Gustav Kahn wrote novels. The Solar Circus. That's a cool title. Uh, and so I looked and the only, so very briefly, like this novel's publication history is very simple. It was published in a review in 1898 in five or six monthly installments or bi-monthly installments. And then at the end of 1898, that review's in-house press published it as a complete novel. Uh, and that was it until in... Gosh, um, I have it right in front of you. Bear with me for one second. 2002... Uh, a woman named Sophie Bash, who's a professor at the Sorbonne, published a anthology of circus novels in French, and the Solar Circus was in there. So I was able to find a copy of that anthology, and uh, that's where I read it for the first time. And I decided to translate it first because it wasn't translated yet. Um, nobody had done it yet, so I wasn't able to talk about it with friends and people like that who might be interested in it. That's, um, that's pretty much my main interest when it comes to translation is being able to share these, these interesting authors or these weird books with, with people who might enjoy them, but don't have them available. Um, so that's why I picked it initially when I read it, I was just so dazzled by the prose. I'd never really read anything that felt so, fun and spontaneous. There's lots of like beautiful poetry that was written in the 1880s and 1890s, but a lot of it is kind of heavy and dense and very atmospheric. And this was just so vivacious that I was really just sort of charmed by it. Um, and then I read it the second time and I was able to engage more seriously with the philosophy that underpins it. Um, and I thought like, Oh no, this is like a very, interesting book. It's very much like a product of its time, stylistically, thematically, all of that. Uh, and so I spoke with the editor at First Tanakh, and he was interested in me doing a translation of it, and it went from there. But that's also uh, why, and you mentioned this earlier, I did an introduction to the novel in this edition, and there's also a small little postface that I was able to add. And I did that because I didn't want the reader if they made it to the end, if they made it to the end of the book to uh, have been so bogged down by the language that they weren't able to engage with some of the themes, which for me personally had been a little bit harder to pick up on the first time. And so I wanted to put something there to sort of introduce some of the themes that I didn't want to put in, in the introduction, but also encourage them to literally do another lap, another loop, another cycle through the book to read it again. Mm. And why why do you think it is that Khan has been forgotten? It seems to me that, that there's perhaps not really a a major reason for this. He's just a smaller, more more minor yeah, figure in history. He um, certainly was well known in his day within the circle of symbolist poets. Um, he was sort of eclipsed by other figures that were bigger, like Mallarmé. Um, who was a contemporary of his. And I think Khan didn't, well, yeah, no, that's not it. I was going to say that I don't think he produced a big volume of work, 
But that's not true. When you look at the list of works that he produced on, on Wikipedia or wherever, there's really quite a lot of them, and they're very important. Um, it's also interesting because he played a very important role as an editor of these reviews. Uh, so he played a very important curatorial role. And so he really gave a fairly important platform to a lot of more experimental and up and coming younger poets who wanted to be part of the symbolist movement. You know, he gave them uh, the forum to do that. And I think also, uh, to get back to the novel, that's why the character Kramer is there. Uh, Kramer is the director of the circus and Khan spends a lot of time talking about him. Uh, the whole third act starts with this long gambit about Kramer racing around London and trying to set everything up. And Kramer at this point is older. He's, he's later on in his career and he feels sort of bitter and dejected about not having become as famous as his stars. And Khan even says, um, speaking of Kramer, he says, he had known happiness thanks to his vital warmth, but he had not encountered fortune. Not that he was not rich and envied, the owner of a pageant of nomadic magnificence, of a well-flanked troupe, of beautiful set pieces, of superb costumes, and of fine animals. He was rich and he was known, but what he wanted and what the world owed him, yes, owed him without question, for he had arrived, politely, correctly, his hands full of pleasures to dole out, was opulence, the dazzling sun that made the wealthy indolence dream as they sat meditating upon their benches in the square or over their molesteens in the corner cafe. And glory, true and lasting glory, accompanied by a tidy, flattering title. To be the king of the circus, as another might be king of oil, or the king of salted pork, or the king of mines, or the king of the Belgians, the Napoleon of something in any case, and in the worst case, a dazzling meteor, ephemeral, if necessary, though he hopes not, such that he might remain in well-funded old age, one of those hearty examples that one delights in quoting when one travels incognito. Millions, glory, a palace in Venice, a chateau in the environs of Paris, and a comfortable homestead in London. Such were the stated wishes of Kramer. Um, so Kahn, as he writes this in 1898, it's been 11 years since his first collection of free verse poetry came out. 12 years that he's been uh, editing these experimental literary reviews, and he's seen younger poets overtake him and become more famous. He's seen uh, his contemporary, Mallarmé, rise to the top and be put in a position as the figurehead, as the godfather of the symbolist movement. Uh, and he's still there in the trenches, editing these reviews and, you know, letting other people sort of use him and his reviews as a springboard to launch themselves into a place where they are in the spotlight. And so I think Kramer is meant to be seen as Khan. I think that's why Khan spends so much time talking about Kramer's emotional states hmm. in a novel where he doesn't really develop too many characters beyond Franz. I um, see. Yeah. So I don't know why he's not famous. It's just bad luck. Um, it's usually, and I think, it's usually the you know, reason. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason for it. This, uh, this novel's great. Uh, he wrote, and this this was the third novel he wrote. Uh, there are two others. There's one called The Mad King and one called The Tale of Gold and Silence, both of which are excellence. And then he wrote other novels after this. Uh, 
Mm. Uh, he worked as a very famous art critic. Uh, he really, he had his hand on a lot of different projects and did them very competently, very deftly. It's just, yeah, bad luck. Has anything else been translated? Uh, yes, The Mad King has been translated and The Tale of Gold and Silence have both been translated. Uh, I have not read the English translations of them, but uh, yeah, those are both out there. Not from First Knock, but yeah, you can find those. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you'd uh, like to add about Khan or the, the book that you feel we should discuss? Um, no, not necessarily. I think... I would encourage uh, anybody who's curious about this to to pick it up, to give it a give it a look. I think there are a lot of different ways that you could read this. And if I had been speaking about this book with somebody other than yourself, James, I might uh, have had a totally different conversation. I think you can talk about it as a circus novel. You can talk about it as a piece of prose poetry. You can talk about it as a philosophical novel. It's really... Khan is very competently taking on a lot, a lot, a lot of things and doing it very well. And I think beyond that, just the text is is very enjoyable to read. I think there are funny parts. Um, there are very moving parts. It's just very enjoyable. I would encourage anybody who's curious to uh, to give it a look. If your listeners are in the United States, they can find the book at different bookstores all throughout the country, but um, on the first Tanakh website. But if they're in the UK or in Europe, we have a UK distributor called Anten, A-N-T-E-N-N-E, which ships from the UK, and that will save them quite a bit of money on postage. I'll be sure to put uh, both those links in the description below. But uh, yeah, Sam Kunkel, once again, it's been a great discussion. A pleasure as always. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Thank you.